Welcome to episode four of Metacritic. I'm joined, as always, by James Kent. And, as a special surprise, Brian Cook. Oh, Say no. hello, guys. Brian? Fuck. <laughs> we've, already, we've already fucked Beautiful. up. Beautiful. Beautiful. I could not be more pleased with the way that went. That was fantastic. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um... Uh, no, I, I actually, I fucked up that intro because instead of, I, I, only after saying both your names did I realise that I was then going to like throw to Brian and yeah. I'd forgotten to throw to James. So I was like, uh, let's, anyway. let's do that again and maybe, and throw, throw to James then. Maybe. No, 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 no. I'll just edit it so it sounds like I threw it to people in the right way. Okay. Okay. James, do you want to say your response to the, the, um, Chris? This- no, this this couldn't have gone better. This is this is this is the <laughs> best. This is the best possible introduction to to what I assume will be an excellent conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start as you mean to go on. So, <laughs> firstly, Brian, thanks for joining us. We've discussed already that by appearing on this podcast, you are implicitly and explicitly associating yourself with everything we do, and this is the point at which. I am going to announce that we have joined social media. I have set up an Instagram account around my cosplaying and alternate reality in which Adolf Hitler wore blackface. Instagram.com slash Schickelgruber blackface. Schickelgruber what? Blackface. And you've already, you're already on the pod. I've got your audio now. So, so you endorse that. I did. I did. Yeah. I'm looking to commit a kind of suicide by cancellation. I want to get preemptively cancelled. And I thought, one, I like the uh, ruthless critique of all that criticizes. And two, if you're going to go out, if you're going to try and, and commit this kind of social suicide, why not do it on Mark Kelly's podcast? I really respect that. And, uh, you know, what could be more poetic? I mean, you, you had me on your podcast, Brian. So Brian is the host of, and I should have said this when I introduced you, the philosophy, or possibly slightly anti-philosophical, given the title, podcast, Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. It is philosophy can ruin your life, not philosophy will ruin your life, right? It is something that I've often thought was a mistake, as in, yeah, it's, it's got the sort of merely mouthed equivocal can and i think the definitive will or shall should have been used but that has something to do this is probably of no interest whatsoever to your listeners but to the weird uh history of that name which has to do with me misremembering or mixing up the title of a paper by justin clemens on psychoanalysis with a book that he never wrote called how philosophy can ruin your life, and the and the title is it is a sort of palimpsest of this of this uh, partially synthetic memory. So the I mean the title ultimately is it's kind of agnostic about philosophy rather than anti philosophical. Yeah, I, I mean I suppose that wasn't my intention. I really wanted I should have made it will, and it should have an exclamation mark at at the end because because the idea was to parody a kind of Alain de Botton-like bullshit, you know, how philosophy can make everything better and so forth. And also I find the phrase to ruin one's life intriguing, you know? I mean, obviously there are terrible things that can happen to a person, etc., where, where, you know, that phrase might be appropriate. But I also think it's got the weird suggestion 
implicit suggestion that your life is a kind of I, I, I don't know a commodity something something that you want to take care of and that it can go badly I, I suppose commodity is not the word I'm looking for it's like it's it's like it's a product like there's me and then separately to me there's my life and how's that going well we wouldn't want to ruin it and what what does that mean it usually means some kind of I don't know heading ever further into the certification of one's middle classness or or something like that and I, I thought no what if what's good about philosophy is actually it will completely destroy you from the perspective of all of the things that people would consider make a life good or worthwhile or happy yeah this sounds this sounds profoundly correct to me and actually very interesting in the sense that it because i'm i'm pretty down on philosophy writ large and i I think i've been making this clear in the other episodes of this podcast but actually the vision of philosophy you're giving there is extremely appealing which is that philosophy is actually redeemed by its sheer destructive potency. Yeah. It, no, precisely. I, I, I couldn't have put that better. I, I do think that it's to do with, to say this is very classical in some ways, very, this is a prelude to a potential fight we might have later on the in the podcast, but maybe even a little bit Socratic, Platonic, that any intervention into philosophy uh, when you do something egregious like philosophy there are people around socrates it comes up in the dialogues comes up in xenophon who say things like what are you doing like this is fine for young men as a kind of intellectual training or really old men who are like impotent and can't fight aren't really good for anything they can do this sort of stuff but to actually devote your life to something like that why the fuck would you do that that's ruinous right but this always makes me ask, and I think that's a fairly classical philosophical question, from what perspective is that critique made, right? That there's this assumption that, oh, no, but we know what the good is and what constitutes a useful use of this space between two eternities and whatever. And the only thing that definitely doesn't constitute a, a good use of an existence is whatever philosophers are doing. Yeah, turn that vice into a kind of perverse virtue. Yeah, well, I think we can candidly say that we're trying to do just that on this podcast, and perhaps we can be redeemed in this way. James, you got any thoughts on this? No, I was just thinking about the fact that often when I, I mean, I don't have very many opportunities to talk about Socrates in first year philosophy when I'm teaching it, but I, I try to introduce him, and I always talk about him as a kind of, I sometimes call him the Socratic pest, in the sense that he, he is this kind of figure that haunts you and kind of, or annoys you. But as Brian is quite right here, it's to say that the, the pest element of Socrates is very much from the perspective of those who want to ignore him. I've listened to your podcast, Brian, and I've, I'm always thinking about the fact that I would want to give a defense of philosophy in that initial question into how philosophy ruined your life. And then it is, it is a kind of Socratic defense, which is in a way it saved it, but in a very particular way. And as I, I actually agree with Mark, its salvation comes through the sort of utter destruction of what you thought was there. You know, I've been approaching it through the oblique lens of uh, irony, but we actually did get social media this week. I started up a Twitter account, and actually, I started up a Twitter account entirely because I'd asked Brian to come on. I mean, I, I did this subsequently. I thought of this before, right? A couple of weeks ago, I was like, we've got a podcast. We want people to listen to it. We need to get the word out. And social media would seem to be the way that one does this, right? Podcasts clearly themselves are not 
a social medium. I mean, I kind of want it to be. That's that's why we have you on, Brian, and I, you know, I hope to have conversations with other people. I'd like this to be social. I don't I don't want it to be a kind of anti-social podcast where where James and I are just involved in the echo chamber of our own ideas. But social media, I mean, it's very close to to looking like the real world of sociality at this point. It's where stuff seems to happen. Now, neither James nor I have a Twitter account. I don't think James has ever had a Twitter account. I had one for many, many years, but deleted it last year because I became just very unhappy with what what I regard as the kind of cesspool of Twitter. You know, I, I suggested that James should start a Twitter account for the podcast. And he said, no, you know, fair enough, because I have no intention of doing it either. But then I did do it. I did do it because we're having you on, Brian. And I know you as, in addition to knowing you in real life, know you as a Twitter presence and one of the good ones. Huh. This is just a recognition of my complete and utter addiction and, and ruination. The, the internet in, in all its forms is is just crack to me and I can't control myself in any way. And so for me, I've just been slowly getting off social media. I got off Facebook last year, that kind of stuff. And I've never been on Twitter. And I, cause I know that it just pushes the right buttons for me and I will never get off. And I think, I think Mark is quite similar in that, in that regard is that there's the kind of combination of humor, uh, a bit of spice there. And, and also there's the, the promise of just niche issues, which are endlessly fascinating to me. And, so I'm younger than both of you and I'm just old enough to remember what life was like before the internet, but I also have no real connection to it. And so my adolescence and all that kind of stuff was entirely driven by the internet and lived through the internet, not in the same way as kids these days. So for me, long story short, is that I just, I can't be in it. I, I, have, to, I have to avoid it at all costs, even though I will still check, even though I have no Twitter, I will check people's Twitters every day because I want to see what people are saying. It's, it's terrible. Like it's, and, it's, and it's pure just addiction. That's all it is of its most, the most banal kind. That's certainly um, something that I think everyone brings up around the use of it. I mean, they are designed, the, these forms of social media, I think, are designed to take advantage of their sort of techno-pharmacological uh, entities that are designed to take advantage of pigeon-like operant conditioning plus, you know, that the dopamine-related jouissance of vague dissatisfaction, right? Like like that one finds in gambling and so forth, the pathetic thing where one reloads or a screen to see how many, whether you've, whether you've, you've got an extra like or something like that, and then think, oh, I feel connected to the rest of humanity and a community. And also, also I'm a sort of... Uh, celebrity poet-like figure now because clearly my my aphorisms have been appreciated by 10 other anonymous people uh, who bear some resemblance to people I know with something something like that yeah we, we all know these travails I was something I was thinking about Twitter recently as I was thinking one of the great perverse joys of Twitter is while obviously it's a complete illusion that someone appreciating your posts and your hot takes could make you like a writer, like a novelist or a poet or something like that. Analogy is completely illegitimate, except in one respect. And that one respect is that I think everyone who's ever had a Twitter has had an experience that I think writers, philosophers, all sorts of people who've actually published work has had, which is a kind of resentment of their audience for liking the wrong things. It's like, why did you, you know, why did everyone like that quite mediocre 
aphorism of mine, but they ignored the true genius, right? Like faced, faced with tweet number 16 of 2020, which was the really spicy, hilarious one. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 that's a really good point. I, I had the same experience on Facebook and I found in the last year of my existence on Facebook is that it was purely, I was purely there for zingers and to have my zingers recognized. And as you say, inevitably it was the wrong one. It was the wrong one. And I think the logical culmination of that is you realize how pathetic your life is. And I mean, this entirely in my case, I think there's two ways you can go there. You can either double down and then just accept that the internet is a wasteland and you are part of that wasteland, or you can try and remove yourself from it and I suppose be a disgrace in another way. That's, that's how I've gone about it. <laughs> yeah. You really nailed it beautifully when you talked about this kind of techno-pharmacological dimension of social media. It's such a shit reference at this point because it's so insanely overused to the point of totally defining our mimetic Agreed. landscape. You don't even know what reference I'm going to make yet, Brian. Don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to... <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to say? Tell me. Um, yeah, I, can't, I can't believe I'm actually taking the bait here. Uh, you're about to say that it is a platitude right that, that apart from being a platitude to refer to its techno-pharmacological thing it's the sort of thing that has also been subject to the logics of the same techno-pharmacological process like as in one can tweet on twitter right about the about the horrors of online addiction and make a link to um shifts zuboff's the age of surveillance capitalism and so forth but that in itself just gets caught up in the logic of posting like I'm doing that in order to get a few likes from other people on the, is, is that where you were going? Like, No, no, it's, it's, it's quite amusing because what you suggested is so much more sophisticated than what, what I was going to say. But inevitably, of course, you, you're, you're operating levels above me. I was, I was going <laughs> to, but what you say is very, very interesting. It really struck me. And actually, I don't see this as much. I'm back on Twitter now because I set up this Metacritic critique you know, podcast Twitter. This doesn't seem to be, I don't see this as much on Twitter. When I was last on Twitter, like a year or two ago, just everyone kept saying how Twitter was hell. People kept tweeting about how Twitter was a living hell, which is certainly one thing that influenced me to leave. Referring to it as a hell site and so on. The reference I was about to make was to The Matrix. <laughs> Got you. Right. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. You shouldn't underestimate, you know, the depravity of my mimetic life. Never. <laughs> In relation to kind of this, this pharmacological question, right? And I mean, the, the two references occurred to me with a very similar ones with a reference to Nozick's pleasure machine thought experiment, right? Robert Nozick's idea. So this is the, the, uh, the matrix, I presume, I don't need to explain for our listeners, but for the kind of not more non-philosophical listeners, Ro Robert Nozick, this, the famous CIA-funded, allegedly American right-wing philosopher, had this, this idea, in, very, very significant idea in, in 20th century ethics uh, thought experiment, imagining someone attached to a machine that just gave them pleasure all the time, right? Because certain kind of ethical perspectives basically are hedonistic and say the point of life is pleasure. And Nozick says, well, you know, therefore you should prefer being attached to a machine that just constantly gives you dopamine hits rather than living your life. And I mean, there's a real question of whether this isn't what social media is doing. I mean, The Matrix, you know, raises this question. It has, it has the one character, and of course, you know, the, the, the original movie, who basically takes the blue pill, who's like, yeah, I'm happy to live in The Matrix in a, with a luxurious lifestyle. Because, I mean, after all, what's outside The Matrix is, is garbage, right? It's, it's horrendous. 
So it's better to be in the matrix than out of it from that point of view. And of course, this isn't quite as crude as the Nozickian pleasure machine because the matrix isn't a pure pleasure machine. But it's probably better than the alternative if, if, if you look at it from, from a kind of hedonistic perspective. What I'm getting at with this, sorry, very circuitous discussion, is the, the question of whether if social media were giving us these hits, but we couldn't see anything intrinsically wrong with social media, would there be an objection? Like, firstly. And, and secondly, is it giving us the hits? And the, I mean, you know, isn't there something that at a phenomenological level is quite unpleasant about being on social media, which goes back to that kind of Twitter is hell thing, right? That there's, there's something inherently unsatisfying about social media, that although it kind of satisfies you on a level which is addictive, as James said. I think this, this issue of uh, the addictiveness of that which falls below pleasure per se is really important for talking about the internet and is also present in the matrix so i've got two things to say about this one you remember that in the in the matrix they ask at one point this is probably my i thought one of the best things in in the film that why the evil robots or whatever who created the matrix didn't make it into a utopia right and what why instead it's this kind of like late 90s sort of cyberpunk thing which presumably has all of the you know as with cyberpunk in general is a kind of late capitalist hell but there's some kind of shiny trench coats or uh, or something like that for the bourgeoisie but or you can you can aspire to one day own a trench coat and and cool sunglasses but they say that the reason that the machines did not make this kind of utopian environment for human beings that would be something like a Nozickian pleasure machine is that the brain would reject it and the way I've always human brains would just go no but that's not real and a very pessimistic way I've, I've thought about this actually often talking to students about said pleasure machine is through a, something that Schopenhauer says where Schopenhauer I've done this thing with students where I've asked them let's not talk about epistemological questions or whatever about like how do we know what's real the kind of thing that people are supposed to take away from the matrix a better question is where do we get our sense of reality regardless of whether it's real or not and the Schopenhauerian answer to that is we get our sense of reality from that which resists our will, right? So concrete is eminently real-seeming because you can't manipulate it in any way with your mind, whereas constantly, conversely, a dream, right? Anything where reality starts to feel kind of frictionless, you're like, mm, probably not real, yeah? And, and that this is taken into the design of the matrix. So it's almost like the idea that a certain amount of Unpleasure, a certain amount of like pointless resistance to your desires is necessary to give you a sense of the reality of your environment and to keep you locked in a in the cycle of addiction. This is this is fascinating to me because it, it raises the question. And you know, my friend Tom Ayers wrote a book about this, which I never read and mean to about the Lacanian real. So I should, because I'm I'm absolutely this this question of this question of the concept of the real and Lacan, like I'm immensely invested in it and hugely interested in it. And yet there's one book out there on it and I haven't read it. The, so sorry, Tom. Uh, but what I was going to say about the Lacanian Real, right, is this is how, this is very similar to the figuration of the Lacanian Real. I, I'm interested whether you think so, Brian, but you seem to be kind of nodding. The real is associated with the truth and the truth, just, it disturbs knowledge from without, right? So it's outside and, and perturbing. So it, in its essence, it's something you can't against. And obviously, you know, Lacan is language oriented, not will oriented in his ontology, like, uh, Schopenhauer's. But 
in, on either account, though, it strikes me as something that's inadequate here. And this is my immediate response to, to what you're saying. There's something inadequate here when this is applied to the virtual in, in the sense of the internet computers, right? Because you're constantly coming up against some kind of real or, or some kind of something that tests you here because you're constantly coming up against the code. You're constantly coming up against like bugs, like things that are frustrating to you. Things like if you're playing a video game, which is actually really what I was thinking about, although it wasn't what we're talking about, but I think the same is true of social media and it's code base. If you're playing a video game and you just can't, you can't complete the quest or whatever, like that's very frustrating. And in a sense, it's you coming up on the outside. But I think that's, that's really profoundly different to having contact with reality. Like I think there's, there's a really important sense in which that is not real. I mean, from the point of view of someone in the Matrix, I mean, the Matrix is real. Like the Matrix, the, the, the fact that it's virtual doesn't mean it's not something that frustrates and indeed can kill you in the case of the Matrix. So it, it has all the qualities, right? Which, I mean, it is what you're saying, right? The Schopenhauerian example. But in some sense, it's not real. This is what's really important. So if you take that Schopenhauerian definition of the real, then the difference between being in the Matrix and not being in the Matrix is totally inconsequential. Because in both cases, your will is frustrated. Yeah, I think that's right, yes. But that doesn't, seem, that doesn't seem right. And not only does it not seem right at a kind of theoretical level, it also doesn't seem right phenomenologically. Like, there's something to be said for taking the red pill. Like, maybe this isn't true of the Matrix, because the Matrix, in a sense, isn't actually perfect virtual reality. That you genuinely don't notice the difference between it and reality, which is impossible. Let's say. I mean, I, I'd probably go that far. Like, I think it's just not possible for complexity reasons to actually create, create the matrix. But that, that's an aside. Certainly, what we have now, any form of virtual reality, video game, social media, they're not giving you what reality does. No. I, I, agreed. I'm trying to lo locate the, the heart of our disagreement if we have one but i yeah i would agree that neither social media nor video games like and and this is perhaps your, your point about where the matrix analogy breaks down like a, a successful simulation of reality um in a complete simulation of reality in the manner of the uh, computer game. but the the point i i wanted to make up of schopenhauer is that that minimal resistance right is just something that you need to have enough in for the thing to feel real enough for you to invest in it right as in and this is why i think so for example game designers like play around with the question of difficulty that on the one hand like yeah it's not a simulation reality no one's going to mistake it for real life but to keep you playing what you try and do what the designer tries to do i think i don't actually know anything about computer design so i'm just i'm just deducing this but is you kind of think well if you think, why do you play a computer game? Maybe it's for a wish fulfillment. Like I get to be a fucking wizard or whatever, and I can fly and do all of these cool things. Like I don't want to play a game that's like an employment simulator or man who who does kind of menial tasks and occasionally tweets simulator, right? So, so I'm doing it for wish fulfillment, but imagine a game that was just called wish fulfillment that you sort of booted up and it was like, you're kind of the messiah and everyone wants to have sex with you and, and it's all glorious and you have magical powers, that would be boring. So you've got to give obstacles, you've got to give a bit of difficulty to the player so that they can invest in it while also allowing them to have a bit of that sort of fantasy fulfillment. It's about balancing that. And the point I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a propos of social media is I think that that a kind of 
receding horizon of satisfaction in the midst of a kind of anxious dissatisfaction is enough to make you invest in a in something even though it has holes in it and and is not a a kind of matrix like perfect simulation yeah i think what he says right that, that what's really interesting here both video games and social media are kind of immediately attractive in a way that real life i'm, I'm going to call it you know for one of a better phrase real life is not irl real life is not but real life is actually more inherently fulfilling. So on the one hand, you're absolutely right. There's like a certain inherent difficulty to all these activities. Otherwise, they wouldn't be satisfying at all. But there's also, they're also inherently easier. So, you know, so whether it's Twitter or any video game, overcoming the obstacles that, that are presented to you is inherently easier. And it's, it's I think, a question of simplicity. It's a simple system where there's a number of variables and they're, they're, I mean, it can be very complicated, of course. If you're on Twitter, like you have to deal with social variables and, and political variables and all this stuff. In some ways, it amps up way more than, than ordinary reality. But the requirements to, to engage in it and the, the interface is vastly more simple than going out into the garden. I want to put it at this very basic level. Like literally, I mean, literally, this is what we're confronted with now because you have your phone and you have any number of apps on your phone, anything. So not just Twitter, but Candy Crush Saga or just your SMS app. Those things there's an immediate pull to engage with those things. And I find this, like, I'm addicted to my phone. And I think most people basically are at this point. Like, I literally found myself, like, I'm, I, I can be, like, going to the toilet. And I find, I'm not, I don't mean sitting down. I mean, like, standing up, going to the toilet. And I've got my free hand and I've opened my phone. Like, barely without thinking about it, you know, with disastrous consequences sometimes. But, you know, I had a very sanitary experience the last, last couple of years. I mean, it was, I think, contributed to a very broad spectrum change, in my opinion, a lot of things. Uh, getting a little bit personal, but, you know, I had a, a child with my wife, with a daughter who's, who's approaching two years old. But one of the things that was really interesting about this, I mean, I'm sorry, it's going to sound so sentimental, but one of the things that was really interesting with her is taking her out of the house. And I mean, literally out of the house. Like, I can go on the front porch with her, like particularly when she was really little, but it's still true, you know, now, but with a baby, like the very fact that they're outside completely transforms their behavior. It's incredibly calming. Like they're a nightmare inside the house. What I'm, what I'm getting at here, I think the house is already like getting on for being a video game or social media. Like the house is an artificial environment, which is restricted and organized in exactly the same way a video game is basically. It's a, it's a simulation effectively. Right. And what became clear to me, like via that experience of see, seeing her, is realizing that it actually has exactly the same effect on me, but that I don't appreciate it. And, and I still don't do it, despite the fact that I know this pathetically. Right. I know that going outside will elevate my general happiness levels. And I say happiness because I don't just mean pleasure level, I don't just mean dopamine levels. Like it will make me feel great in a, in a holistic way. And yet, when given the option, I still very frequently, perhaps not as much as previously, but still generally, I'm going to fire up a video game. Yeah, I think you've got to the nub of, of what we're talking about, which is the addictive nature of something that may actually be generative, ultimately, of unhappiness. Okay, I'm thinking a couple of things about this. One of the things I'm thinking of is Notes from the Underground by Dostoevsky, right? Which, among other things, is about an attempt to refute a kind of utilitarian idea that we're motivated by, uh, you know, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And one of the things that that book says 
have you ever looked at a human being, right? Like, as in, as in actually, no, human actions, like, and, and your example, I think, is perfect of this, right? Like, there's what would bring you happiness, this sustained, not that kind of evanescent, anxiety-infused, dopamine sort of pseudo-driven pseudo-half-pleasure that you get from playing the game or, or from getting Twitter likes, but something that will bring you genuine sort of happiness, like a feeling of like one that contentment, oneness with the universe, sort of Rousseauian. But do you, do you pursue that relentlessly, right? You'd think, no, we're pleasure-seeking beings, pain-avoiding beings. I would pursue the, I would be Mark man of gardens right but on no instead yeah you're going to the toilet flicking through your phone why is this and i think this is what we need to think about why the latter behavior and i I want to say something like because and not despite the fact that it's ultimately less satisfying is more addictive i'm so glad you brought up utilitarianism because i was thinking about this myself and as someone who has to teach utilitarianism essentially nonstop um, as part of the uh, you know, undergraduate teaching process. It seems to me that the most compelling argument against utilitarianism, or at least a particular kind of utilitarianism, is the modern world in all its forms. Because in terms of my per- my personal life, I I don't know I mean what your two like computer gaming history is, but I, I quit com- computer games in like two thousand and five. I think so. Whenever World of Warcraft came out. Maybe it was 2004, because I, rem- I, I remember knowing then, I was sort of 15 then, or I remember uh, thinking that this was a, a fork in the road for me. Like I either play World of Warcraft and ruin my life, or don't play World of Warcraft and, and do something else. And so I didn't play games for about probably eight years. And then in 2013 or 14 or so, I, I played a few games with a friend's house, and they were so good. Like I could not believe how good they were. Like they were so immersive, so much better than real life in every regard. Like, and, and this was just, and I was like, well, why would you do anything else? And so, and, but this for me was the, the reason not to play them because it's, and I think you've, you've both put your finger on it, is that it's the, it, it really, it's the distinction between pleasure and happiness because what these games do, and as well as social media, is an immediate sense of satisfaction, which is nonetheless awful. But because it's immediate and because it is, better than the alter- the immediate alternative, which is kind of just nothing. You pursue it constantly. But of course, the result is, if you constantly chase that sense of very shallow pleasure, you end up desperately unhappy. It's a platitude and it's kind of banal because people have said this, but it is absolutely true though, in the sense that it shows you the distinction very clearly between pleasure and happiness. I think you're absolutely right i think that was i think that was incredibly well put but something i wanted to to take up from from what you're saying that i think it's worth us discussing is you're you're talking about and for the record i've also had to do this at various times and and lapsed and so forth about restraining yourself from playing video games for the same reason that you uh, you're not on on social media be, precisely because of an awareness of its power right i i suspect we all have friends uh, who we, you know, admire and resent to equal degrees, who seem immune to the lure of such things, particularly with video games, right? Like, it's like, I've never gone there. What the fuck's the point of that? Why would you do that? But we're, I think all three of us are more in the, oh, no, 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 no. It's actually, I know that ineluctable pull and that therefore have to kind of do things to avoid playing it. But I, I think, therefore, one of the things that raises that's worth talking about is, out of what that attraction is, right, 
and also to whom the attraction might be more compelling. And I want to use a bit of a social stereotype here and write like despite the fact that you're both like charming men with Adonis-like physiques and all the rest of it, the, the old association with things like games and nerds, right? Like I think I think the fact that you are both academics, scholars, philosophers, and that you feel a particular compulsion in relation to such things is significant. And the thought that I wanted to just just throw out there is one of the things that I think in addition to the kind of pharmacological side of things, the designed uh, for addiction aspect of some of these technologies is seeking something like, uh, I kind of wanted to ask Mark about this because I feel he's already flagged it, um, seeking something like consistency that reality often seems to lack. And, And what put this in my mind is is actually Mark's reference to the Lacanian real, right? So, you know, in, in Lacan, they say uh, the thing about like the symbolic order, like reality is mostly symbolic for Lacan, is that at some level it has inconsistencies in it. And that's where the, the real comes in and you try to fill over those yeah gaps with conspiracy theories or, or something like that. You try to, something that will make it more consistent than it is. And I think in some ways the philosophical desire from a psychoanalytic point of view, and this is why Lacan occasionally links philosophy and paranoia, is to make reality more consistent than it is. You want a, you want a theory of it that will make all of the bits tie together and so forth. And I think one of the things about games, uh, uh, in particular, particularly with their, with their lore and so forth, is they present this more smooth, more consistent version of of reality that I think exerts a particular attraction on people who might otherwise be in the business for whatever um, horrible psychical history led them to this of of wanting to, yeah, through reading, through thinking about things, through understanding history, be able to make connections to reality that otherwise looms up as as this kind of horrible black you know, ineffable monstrosity. I, I want to use a um, just a, a line from Thomas Pynchon to finish this thought off, which is from from Gravity's Rainbow, where where he says sometimes the only thing worse than paranoia, which of course causes immense suffering, is anti-paranoia. Is that horrible feeling that I think one can also get, interestingly enough, on social media that nothing is connected to anything. And uh, actually, I said that was the last point, but secondary point on this that I think has also been said is that I think these technologies, insofar as they're technologies of connection, they presuppose a kind of alienation or disconnection, right? They presuppose you don't have consistency, you feel isolated, you feel alienated. This will supplement that, but sort of qua supplement, like it can't overcome the thing that it presupposes, which is that you're alienated, that reality seems kind of inconsistent. I want to I want to ju- jump in there. Huge amount of what you just said, said Brian. Look, this this point you make about Lacan is absolutely right. And it's it shows actually what I said before, this kind of assimilating the Schopenhauerian point to the Lacanian point about the real is wrong. Okay, it's really, it's, it's really important. There's a really big difference. Because before I suggested basically it's the same, but it's not. It's not, no. You know, Sch- Schopenhauer's position is you know the real is what resists not that he calls it the real right it's the will for Schopenhauer but you know reality is what resists for Lacan the the real is what's unsymbolizable that's what's really important about it and that's precisely why you don't encounter the real in video games or on Twitter because even what is frustrating to you is symbolizable 
it's a bug, it's a problem in the code, which itself is purely symbolic, right? This is really important. It's really powerfully explanatory of the brain disease that everyone online has now, which is the demand that absolutely all problems are both occurring and then solvable at the level of the symbolic. That's, that's how everyone now approaches everything because they refuse to acknowledge there's anything outside of the symbolic. And, and the only problem, if there is something that seems to be outside it, is it has been inadequately symbolized. Yes. So that's that. This question of, of the supplement then is, is really important. And this, so people go online because I mean, people go and play games. They're on Twitter. Yeah, as you say, because, because it's smooth, but I, I feel like that's not even it. You know, it, it's not, it's it, because it doesn't necessarily offer, offer smoothness. It, I mean, it offers the lure, as I said, of symbolizability. I mean, there's something else I wanted to say, because I think James's last intervention was like really profoundly correct in terms of naming the problem with the process of, of playing a game, which is that it gives you more satisfaction, but it's less satisfying. And I take it that the problem there basically is teleological. This is a slightly different point. If I could be working or I could be playing a video game, and if I'm given the choice, I'll play the video game because it'll give me instant gratification. But the gratification is completely hollow. And this is really, really important. Like the, the gratification I get from writing a book, which is much harder and much less immediately rewarding, is much more lasting and substantial. I'm not going to say, you know, it's a bit hard because there's, there's a certain virtuality to that as well, right? I mean, it's still based on other people's opinion. But the, I mean, the video game, literally, if you haven't, you know, it, it, it's like totally ephemeral. Like the, the achievements in it, and, and there's so much of this now is about, about trying to rack up achievements. So, so much of video games now is about you, you get the, the medals or the skins or you get stuff for having achievements and the dopamine hits come from the satisfaction. And of course, this is replicated, it's replicated online. I mean, I, I mean I, I, the, the likes are a form of like little achievement, but so too, you know, the blue check mark, like the ultimate achievement you get on Twitter, you know, which they then take away, you know, if you behave badly to try and create a, a reward economy. I mean, that's it's trying to put in place something like the kind of supplement that we used to have for life. I mean, this is really important as well. It's really important. And this is going, going to something that James and I are talking about a lot, that real life does need a supplement, a symbolic supplement for human beings. So it's not the case that you can have, there's, there's a kind of unvarnished Thoreauian relationship to reality that will get out of this symbolic trap. But that you need it, you need a supplement that supplements reality itself Right, rather than, I mean, mythology, broadly speaking, I think is probably what, what I'd be thinking of here, and I imagine James would as well. But you need, you need some form of mythicization of reality that makes reality meaningful. Yes. But, but what, what video games give you is just the, the, the mythology. I mean, you're talking about game law, for example. They give you the mythology, but it's not mythologizing reality. It's just a mythology. Uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah, I, uh, I, I think that's, I think that's really good. Yeah, the mythology can't be, it can't perform the function of it, that mythic supplement to reality because it remains kind of locked in its own sort of monadic universe, right? I, I think we're all agreed on the pleasure dissatisfaction component, but it was, it was when you made the point about achievement. I've actually never been particularly interpolated by this, but you know what they call a, a completionist in games. It's like you play the game, you go through it, but actually this goes particularly with the economic model of a lot of new games like subscriber services. It's like you've done everything that you could possibly do, but now try and get all of these achievements. Like like you get a little marker on your profile for having picked up a thousand feathers or something like that. 
could there be a way in which, as well as the sort of paucity of the realities necessary supplement that you're talking about, that one of one of the ways in which games appeal to us is it's trying to give you a faster route to something that reality or, or rather the the ideology that governs reality that we still have suggests to you as the way the world works except that you feel impotent in relation to it so what i'm what i'm talking about is kind of i think if we move to different media like tv a lot of the kind of dominant liberal discourse even in education is kind of well what is what is life well it's a competition it's a struggle for uh, recognition or something something like that right like work hard on something and then eventually you know how many kind of hollywood stories have we had and there'll be like tragedy and there'll be the moment where no one sort of acknowledged how great you are but at some point eventually through your struggles um you'll have kind of something like a base a social recognition except this will be extravagant tied to narcissistic fantasies and so forth society is already selling you that fantasy but that is unobtainable in various ways, or you feel powerless, right? Like you feel, here I am trying to start writing this book and it's not going very well, like there's no real prospects. And it's like, and the game is there to say, no, I've got these little symbols of like approval from the big other, however evanescent, however kind of tenuous, however, in fact, actually ultimately both unreal and dissatisfying, but that's a way I can continue to buy into the ideological fantasy of the time it's like even a way of trying to preserve the fantasy by making it more i don't know whether i'm really reaching here just thinking out loud but by making it more phantasmatic right like as as in like the goal is to ultimately preserve that broader social fantasy of like you can strive and achieve things and be recognized for them in that ultra individualist kind of late capitalist way I want to suggest, actually, I think you might have hit the nail on the head here, kind of in passing what you're saying. When you set that up just then, you suggested that people were searching for something from the big other in in video games. But actually, in in Lacanian terms, I wonder if the big other's there. I mean, isn't that the problem? Yeah. Precisely with video games, that there is no approval of the big other? Like, you're getting satisfaction, but it's without relationship to the big other. It might be with the small other. I mean, it's it's quite complicated to explain this to anyone who doesn't know Lacan, but, you know, the, the... I mean, the big other can stand for many things, uh, you know, social approval, God. Yeah. But there's no, there's an overarching framework which tells us what to do with our lives. I mean, I, I associate the big other with Freud's superego, kind of moral imperative, right? So if you're at home playing video games, but you should be out looking for a job, then the big other's telling you to go and get a job, not play video games. And there's no, there is no big other in the video games. Like uh, the, you can try and find it. I mean, the maximum you can find, which of course is what, everyone's searching for is some way to combine the two i mean this is the dream now the dream of you know everyone basically you know every generation z male is to become pewdiepie and be able to become wealthy through playing video games absolutely and thereby actually manage to square the circle where all you live is in your virtual world but your virtual world actually does all the stuff you need to do in the real world as well like gets you a wife and, and approval of your parents and and money and of course, if you and if you do that, actually, it does. I mean, it works yeah. quite. If, if you're a successful esports player or Twitch streamer, potentially you have squared the circle here. Like you actually, you're managing through achieving things in a video game to actually achieve goals outside of the video game. 
which actually I think changes what that behavior is. Like if that's your relationship to video games, you're in a radically different space. And of course, this is also replicating social media. If you're a social media influencer, potentially, if you're actually a successful one, not someone who's pathetically trying to be one, you potentially have, it's a job like any other job. And of course, it's going to be completely alienating in all kinds of ways, just like any environment-based activity. I mean, we three who do philosophy for a living know all about this, right? How alienating it is when you do what you love. I mean, this is the worst advice possible, like the do what you love, because it, it introduces alienation into the core of your being. But nonetheless, yeah, yeah. it's not the same kind of sheer onanism that it is when I play video games. Yeah, I, I think that's a good distinction. And I, I'm wondering whether I can still salvage some of my point, because you're, you're absolutely right about... Well, I partially agree with you on the on the big other and and you know the fact that you're definitely not fulfilling the kind of broader social imperatives by playing video games, for example. Yeah, like that. There's no marker of kind of social success, and this is why that I think they interestingly, despite how you know the size of the industry and and how much more they have entered people's lives, how many more people play them, I think they still have an interesting kind of stigma around the wasting of time that other things do not like as in people know like watching television is also not fulfilling those kind of productive imperatives but i think video games still have this status in some ways as being like the ultimate in time wasting activities but part of the point i was trying to articulate before which i'm not that suited to but is is it's it's something like the thought that the the very something like an inconsistency or ambiguity about what the big other in the way that you described it, Mark, is, right, plays a role in the video game fantasy. Like that even though you're clearly not in real terms fulfilling all of any of the kind of broader social imperatives, it's like you don't have a job, you live in the proverbial basement. I think part of the fantasy, at least for the evanescent moment that you're playing it, is that and that you're racking up achievements or whatever, is that weirdly you are following a, a superego imperative of some sorts. Particularly if we think of the perversity of you know it's a famous uh, a thing from Zizek and Lacan of the kind of modern superego of a consumer society exhorting you towards to enjoyment and and not to kind of moral prescriptions like it's it's the both and of the way that that big other works in this society that on the one hand it's telling you you know no you've got to work hard get a job right like since financial crisis it's all very hard and the only thing to do is to keep working on the commodity of yourself become fitter become more adaptable work harder than the other people there's those very sort of brutal imperatives combined with another maybe more fantastical one but i think is no less super egoic in its imperative structure which is enjoy and those things meet in the fantasy when you mentioned the streamers and so forth of you can do what you love and turn that into uh getting social approval sorry Mark. no no that's absolutely right and you've completely hit the nail on the head here and it's it, i mean this goes back to what james is saying about utilitarianism actually right that utilitarianism is contemporary ethics yeah right that the, or at least it reveals 
the profound hedonism of contemporary ethics. And actually, so what is, you know, going back to my previous point about, you know, the generations there, you know, doing what you love, this, this mantra, this has become the, the sole ethical imperative. It's not just, you're absolutely right. So there's an ethical imperative now to enjoy because life is completely meaningless. It's, you know, the, the only meaning you wouldn't get out of life. There's no higher concept of happiness. There's no higher concept of telos. It's, it's purely about hedonistic enjoyment. Consequently, the only only thing that can make sense if you are a young man and you enjoy playing video games, and I'm going to suggest that that is true basically of every young man who's ever played video games. Right? I think I, I want to suggest because there's, there's this whole thing before about like there's some people who seem who seem immune to video games. As far as I'm concerned, that's like people being immune to smoking cigarettes. Right? If you if you and I, I know plenty of people who aren't interested in video games. As far as I'm concerned, that's because they've never seriously played them. Yeah, but yeah. If you've if you've smoked, you're a smoker. Like, and you're always yes. going to be a smoker and you're addicted to cigarettes forever. And I think that's also true of video games. A very similar situation. You might not play video games for eight years, but you can get back in that in an instant just so you can with cigarettes. Yeah. And that's the situation. And it's, it has a universal appeal for the reason it has the structure. I mean, the only people it wouldn't have a universal appeal to are people who have a profoundly different psychic order. So like if you're Amish, you're probably not going to want to play a video game. It's going to seem completely ridiculous and pointless to you because you have a profound understanding of the universe and where you fit into it which like playing a video game is not going to speak to. But if you live in the 21st century and you, you're you know, totally into kind of hedonistic atheism, then the only thing that's going to make sense to you is doing something that is giving you pleasure and that being your job, because that's the only way to tick all the possible boxes. But that also explains, I think, why everyone is so unhappy, because that, that, that's not possible. But what I was thinking, this is probably a parallel point, but... I mean, the, the risk, I mean, there's multiple risks here. And, I, and I, I'm suspicious, as I think is right to be, of the dialogue, or especially the sort of mainstream media dialogue around the, you know, the risks of the internet or the risks of gaming, because the, the assumption is always something like, as, as we say, it, it stops you from doing productive stuff in inverted commas. I think the risk here is that, so on the one hand, so if you look at the history of games, and, I, and indeed of, of social media, I suppose, in a slightly different way, is that, it originally imports a particularly binary understanding of the world, which it has to by definition because coding is binary. Like it ha- this, this, this has to be the case and that's fine. And so, and we see this in games, obviously games become more complex as the technology improves, but the risk then I think is not that that sort of, you know, damages you in some way or, 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 or whatever. It's the fact that your own thinking in the world becomes binary. And so in fact you import so rather you export this kind of very binary understanding of, of the, the internet into the world. And I was just struck by when you were talking about, I can't remember whether it was Mark or, or Brian, we were talking about, you know, self-improvement and this idea of wellness. All, all I can think about is like, I don't know if you ever played GTA San Andreas, but, you know, just going to like the fake gym and like getting, getting ripped. That's all I can think about. And there seems to be this like really binary and like computer game understanding of being alive and like collecting stuff and yeah, just like reducing your life to like the most absurd kind of game. But of course, unlike in San Andreas, you can't do all the cool stuff. You only you can only do the banal stuff, which is like look, watch what you eat, and lift, make games, and drive around. That's it. The risk here is that you actually export the most binary form of life back into the world, and you see that I think in the way that people, you know, influences this kind of stuff. And, but it also, that just mediates into normal existence as well. And so you, this crushing, you know, when you talk to friends going, Oh, I, I I like my, my job is okay. And I like my relationship, but I also 
I hate it. <laughs> and, and so you're like, well, yeah, it's because your life has turned into San Andreas without the carjacking. James, that, I, I, think, I think that's fucking brilliant, actually. Like, like I think you, you've really drawn together a, a point that I've been kind of trying to make and failing through my, my last couple of interventions. But I think that just encapsulates it brilliantly that in a way, I want to sort of turn this into a sort of some sort of hyperbolic thesis statement that part of the problem with games, and perhaps we can use this to then talk about social media, but is not the extent to which as the kind of criticism of them give that they are kind of time wasting withdrawn from reality but they and the general sort of social exigencies but they actually contain too much of a replica of that right like maybe even coming back to what we were saying about at the beginning about the kind of not not to go into too much of a sort of auto fellatio of philosophy and philosophers but we were talking about the sort of negativity of philosophy right that negativity is is implied with something like spending time in a virtual world or something like that you're you're not fulfilling the wellness and productive imperatives but you just gave a, a i think a brilliant example of of the fact that actually in video games no they're constructed in such a way that you respond even in the realm of kind of fancy, even in your time-wasting movement moments to precisely those imperatives, right? Like here I am, I'm collecting, I'm in fact, and this is I think part of the segue to social media, one of the things you often get in games is kind of a kind of commodified simulation, like often often put in quantitative forms of um, relationship building, right? Like, like you can do things like in in role playing games and so forth. Like, I gain sort of friendship points with virtual Mark through a series of interactions, and I now have a bar that tracks that or whatever. That this is this is kind of inheriting things from the kind of society we we live in more than driving it. I, I suspect. I think we might actually stop there. Like, we've got a, a lot of material in the can. We've been going for. I think, Mark, that you're you're right in terms of not making the episode into a behemoth, um, that we should uh, stop there. But this might be, yeah, I don't want to be presumptuous, but but I, I feel that a part two would be good where we take up the, the social media thread that we have have sort of left, but make this one episode, maybe even, even if you'll have me a second time, like we just pick up where we left off go into the social media thing and then that's number five but but that would mean double brian which which maybe the world isn't ready for the world can look after itself i think (laughs) (laughs) yeah the world doesn't want more brian i don't want to live in the world so like you know you fuck the world (laughs) you're a sick man
your mouth and you think you got it 